Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Bendy, and welcome to the podcast. And today we have a, a kind of a special episode because we're going to be celebrating one of my favorite albums of all time, and certainly uh, one of the favorite albums of my guest today. He is known to you all as the guitarist and arranger from XTC. He's also uh, been quite involved with Big Big Train over the years. Tin Spirits is another project that you might know him from. And we had such a nice chat last time Dave was on the program and, and really nice response from the audience uh, who love to hear Dave's voice and his ideas. And uh, we're going to do that, do that today in the context of the music of Genesis. It's the 50th anniversary of Nursery Crime, which really, I think, launched the band into the great period that most people know their stuff from. And uh, we'll get into some details on that. But I'm just so happy to welcome Dave Gregory back. Dave, hi. It's lovely to be here again, Greg. How are you? I'm okay. Nice to see you. Thanks. You too. I um. I guess we we're talking about something from 50 years ago. And the 50, you know, you and I both keep track of these things. I, I know that I've shared my timeline of progressive music with you, and you have one as well. Um, what are some of the other 50ths this year? Right, let's have a look what I've got on the floor. Oh, we've got a Steppenwolf uh, Greatest Hits, uh, Steppenwolf Gold, uh, Procol Harum Broken Barricades, uh, Cat Stevens Teaser and the Firecat, oh, ELP Tarkus, mm. Free Live, the band Free, they made a live album. It's a bit ropey, but it's 50 years old. It's good. <laughs> I still like it. Uh, Fairport Convention, Angel Delight. Lovely record. Uh, Peter Hamill, Fool's Mate. Stevie Wonder, Where I'm Coming From. Very important album. Seldom mentioned anywhere in any kind of uh, context at all. You know, everyone assumes he went from Signed, Sealed, and Delivered straight to, um, you know, Music of My Mind. They forget. Where I'm coming from, some cool stuff on that. And then there's a couple of, uh, I'm sure there's a whole heap of, that's just June, by the way, that's that's just this month. I've just pulled these out of the, the, the shelves here to celebrate uh, 50 years of enjoyment of these particular records. Uh, but there's all kinds of, uh, I mean, it, it was an important year. I mean, people have written books about 1971 and how important it was. It was, uh, you know, Prog, prog, it was a year of progression, in, in quite literally, really. Yes, and, and I like to always say, uh, first Weather Report album. Oh yes. And you, well, I'm not familiar Weather... with that. I'm I'm familiar no. with Weather Report, obviously, but I don't have the album. I'm ashamed to say. Now you saw them play at Ronnie Scott's back in the day, right? I did indeed. Yeah, that was a, that was in '72, summer of '72. Um, uh, an American friend came to visit and uh, he, we went to London, as all Americans love to go to London and look around anyway, as we were there, we went to Ronnie Scott's to see Weather Report and it was the original lineup, Sawinol and uh, 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 Miroslav Vitus on bass and Wayne Shorter and uh, the drummer was Eric Gravatt and I think it was just the four of them. Uh, at the time, I was, you know, it was 
perfect surroundings. The sound was great. Everything was couldn't be better, you know. But it was a bit too jazz for, for my teenage years. <laughs> I, I was just found it a little bit sleep-inducing by the end of the evening. But it was good to have actually seen them and said I was there because I actually was. Yeah, you, you saw I, them you with saw Gravat. Them. That's no small thing. Hmm? Eric Gravat. Um, some other 50ths this year. Frank Zappa, Fillmore East. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else? I can't read my, my small type there. Um, oh, Miles Davis, Jack Johnson. Tribute to Jack Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, In the Land of Gray and Pink, Caravan. Oh, Caravan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, you said Tarkas. Yeah, of course. Oh, Chick Corea, Song of Singing. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Family, um, old songs, yes. new songs. Old songs, new songs. That was a compilation. Yes, that was a kind of greatest almost hits. And uh, Fearless. That's 71 as well, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Oh, of course, this year it's the Yes album and Fragile. And Fragile. Very, but both very important records. Agreed. Uh, yes, and uh, Egg, The Polite Force. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Gentle Giant, Acquiring the Taste. Wow. Yes. Okay, so as you say, 71's a big year, and Nursery Crime comes out what month, Dave? November. Right. So we're... Late November. So it would have been sort of recorded around about, uh, yes, August, September time, I'm guessing. Now, did you hear this record when it came out? I heard one song. Bob Harris played it on his radio show, Harold the Barrel. And uh, I remember I used to tune in regularly to the show because that was that was my musical in feed, if you like, uh, his show. I couldn't afford to go out and buy records and experiment. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the money to buy records. I used to get all my information from the from Bob's evening sounds of the 70s show. And I'd heard of Genesis. I'd seen their ads in the back of the Melody Maker and the classic in the gig lists and so on. And they were playing, you know, they were always sort of seemed to be either at the Marquee or at Friars in Aylesbury, which was at both very happening clubs. Anyone that appeared there, you had to watch for because you knew they were probably going to do something interesting. And I kept seeing their name in the, in the Inkies. And then I thought, what? I just assumed that for some reason that they were a folk group. I don't know why I thought that. It's just the impression that I had at the time. So then um, Bob Harris played Harold the Barrel, and immediately I thought, "Whoa, this is what they do!" What, a, what it's it was completely original, completely different from anything anyone else was doing at the time. Almost like a sort of a, a Johnny Music Hall song. It is. Yes. And uh, but it was it was kind of quiet. You know, I had to I had to put my ear next to the loudspeaker to hear it properly, but I made a mental note. Must check these guys out because they sound like an interesting bunch of people. 
Uh, that was my introduction, but it took a while. Uh, the following year in 72, uh, they started, you know, getting gig reviews and everything. They were all rave reviews. And I thought, right, well, the next next album they put out, I'm going to have to put my hand in my pocket and go out and buy, which, of course, was Foxtrot. And that was a really changed my life. And so as a result of that, I then went back to uh, check out the back catalogue. Eventually, I, I think the next one I bought was Nursery Crime, and I bought that used from a friend at work. And it was all scratched, uh, not in great condition. But the, it was, again, quiet. It was a lousy master, I have to be honest. It's a, actually a very good production, because I've since, you know, burnt a decent quality CD from it and got the levels up and, uh, you know, done what you have to do added a little bit of EQ to blow the dust off it. It's great. It's a really, really good production. But the pressing, the original pressing, was pretty lousy, I have to say. I think it would have done a lot better had a bit more care been taken at the mastering process. Just my, just my 10 penneth of this late I, stage I, of the I, game. I have to say, um, I'm with you, with you on that, in, in that I did find it to be a disappointing sounding record. But there's some recent uh, stereo mixes by Nick Davis that are generally yeah. available, which I do recommend to people. It may not be the same listening experience that you had when you first heard the vinyl, but you will hear things that you may not have heard on the vinyl due to the limitations of said vinyl. Yeah, and Nick does a great job. He's he's the perfect man to do that. Uh, he really has worked with Genesis for years and years, so uh, I don't think... I doubt even Stephen Wilson would be able to improve on what what Nick can do with those those records. Agreed. So, you went back to 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 nursery crime after hearing Foxtrot. Yeah. Tell me about that experience because I think Foxtrot is in many ways a more mature statement, and it certainly has classics like Watcher of the Skies and Supper's Ready. But as a guitarist, as a musician, what were you vibing on at that point? I think it was just the uh, the sheer power of it. From those opening Mellotron chords from Watcher in the Skies onwards, it's it's perfectly paced as well. You know, it's, it starts with this huge impact, uh, but then it leads you into uh, the more gentle stuff and takes you on a little trip. And that's the difference between a, a, a good album and a great album, when you get the sequencing right and all the dynamics work as a whole, you know, when you put the thing on and for the next 20 minutes, you are sat in your chair, absorbing this ex listening experience. And that's what it did. And uh, of course, the, the softer stuff wasn't as immediate, but over time, it, it just it, it just works its way into the, into the synapses. And, and you become, I became addicted to it. It's one of those records that I did become addicted to, and I'd have to, I'd come home from work and have to put it on just to get a daily fix. And uh, well, we all know the majesty of Supper's Ready. Even to, to this day, people still uh, rate it. You know, the prog heads will put it in the top five of greatest mu music ever made <laughs> by a pop group. And uh, I wouldn't argue for that with that for a second because it is phenomenal. It's just full of full of interesting twists and turns, all of which work. There's no spare flesh on it, even though it's 23 minutes long. Everything in it is there for a purpose and it works beautifully. 
So true. I, I it was more than just, uh, and it was another record that I wouldn't say it was the guitar player's record because there aren't any real sort of standout solos on it. All the guitars are there doing brilliant job, especially the lovely arpeggiating 12 string guitars. I, I love that sound and they, they really championed that idea and, uh, and, 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 and really ran the whole nine yards with it. I love that sound. I love the technique involved and uh, this sort of gentle finger picking and, and it was beautifully captured and put on tape in such a way that it was it, it created a sort of certain magic that wasn't that nobody else was really doing at that time in, in rock. It was a folk technique, but because it was a rock in a rock context, it, it, it took it to another level. So I'm not really, really making myself clear. I, I do struggle trying to explain why music works for me. I just I really want to just sit down and say, here's the record, go and listen to it. You might agree, you might disagree, but that's my advice. Go, go play the record. Did you get to hear the live band at that time, around that time? I heard them once uh, when they were promoting the following album, Selling England, and they did a British tour in October, November 1973 and they did a, an early show at the Hippodrome in Bristol and we were determined you know that right we cannot miss Genesis this time we must go see them and they were great it was fantastic there was just they put on a great show we just I think that I think the album had been released and we were, you know, buzzing on that and, and just getting getting into them, getting used to the new material. And they played a couple of songs from Selling England and then they, they did all the fan favourites. And of course they did Supper's Ready. And yeah, it was a magical night. It was really, really great. I have to say, having performed that material a lot with the musical box over the course of about five, six years, it never got boring it was always vibrant and there's something about hearing the multiple 12 strings live absolutely yes yes that's true there's a way those strings move the air that has this wonderful effect on the eardrums and mm -hmm. uh it, yes but like you say never a dull moment for you guys playing it because you can don't have a minute to to not concentrate there's always something coming up you've got to be ready for so yeah i can quite see why it would have been uh, why why you'd never get tired of doing it ever and it was always uh so you can always find something cool about what's going on in the lower parts of the music in the middle you know you can just listen to voicings you can listen to the way that the the uh, counterpoint things go on or or descant lines go on under vocals there's always something going on mm. um, and of course the audience adores the music so playing that music for an audience that knows every note and the group is that serious about getting every note and we were you know running on a you know very well oiled track and and the music was was in some ways easy to play because you have to live that music you know you play it every night mm -hmm. but then also you know i just feel like that playing it hearing it live does even more justice to the material and obviously we're not 
Genesis doing it. But if you play the material faithfully, it's all in there. It's so put, put together and constructed and all of the guitar parts. And uh, were the guitar parts of interest to you, Dave? Very much, yes, they were. Because again, a lot of the guitarists, electric guitarists at that in the early 70s, they were, were all blues players. They were all Eric Clapton copyists. Some thought they were Jimi Hendrix reincarnate. Um, but Genesis had a far more intelligent uh, approach to it. And they, they weren't concerned with, I mean, it was almost as though some edict had been delivered from on high that uh, you don't fuck about in, on our record, son. These are the notes you're going to play. Or, you know, it's just like you could tell everything's worked out in rehearsal. They decided what, how the song was going to be played. Uh, yes, there, there are great guitar solos, Firth of Fifth being the perfect example of them. But it's structured, it's worked out. That's the solo. You don't wank around. Uh, you work out what you're going to play. If it works with, uh, with the keyboard player, so much the better. <laughs> it better work with the keyboard. It player. better work with the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, it was a, a grown-up attitude to creating the music. Uh, that, that and there was no, there weren't even, um, you know, even I, I would imagine Peter Gabriel at times would sort of leave the stage for five minutes while the band did an instrumental section. It didn't matter to him. It was all part of the part of the tout ensemble. And that was, uh, I just thought it showed a maturity and intelligence way beyond what most musicians were doing at the time. I'll tell you another thing about uh, what you're mentioning in terms of maturity and intelligence. In that period of 71, 72, Genesis had this concept of starting the concert with their acoustic numbers. And it was yeah. so it was a very much a, a drawn in thing, bringing people in. It was quiet. It was Harlequin. You know, it was Happy the Man. It was uh, stagnation. And things would gradually start to add more and more electric. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be organ. And then there'd be the switching to an electric guitar, one electric guitar. Then, you know, so each tune was set to modulate the intensity of the concert. And so by the end, they get to hogweed and supper's ready and, and these things that are going to be the full on electric. And then by, and then the, the last thing is the knife. So, yeah. you know, the full on rocker that's last. And these would be typical uh, of those set lists of, of the early period. Yeah. And that's a very um, interesting um thing. Very brave as well, because obviously if you've got a an audience full of baying fans, you know, a lot of them want, just want to rock. And so they um, for them to just sort of schlep onto stage with a with their acoustic guitars and sit down. Very brave and uh, and, and and like you say, intelligent thinking. Mm. Uh, but you know, they, they they clearly are men of a higher intelligence. And uh, we must never forget that. No. Um, so when you went back to nursery crime after having kind of really uh, consumed Foxtrot, mm -hmm. 
take me through that experience a little bit. Did you start to see connections between the two albums? Because I always find it interesting that there's a similar programming going on in nursery crime that would be even more successfully integrated into Foxtrot. Have you ever thought of that? Uh, I never really, I perhaps it was, it was because I'd gone from Foxtrot backwards, the, that lineage wasn't apparent. You know, it was almost like I was uh, revising or, or catching up. I didn't find on first listening, uh, nursery crime to be as dynamic or as instantly likable. I will say that took a few plays, and um, and of course I, I tended to get to like the things that you know the, the heavier stuff like Phantom of Salmasis and um, uh, and Musical Box as well. You know they were they were the ones that uh, I was immediately drawn to. Uh, and what's the one on the uh, and Hogweed of course. Yes, which was always being mentioned in their reviews the live reviews they would always mention uh, that they performed a, a brilliant version of this song <laughs> what are they doing singing about a plant i couldn't you know th that was intriguing and i thought it was kind of wacky as well <laughs> why would this band be so interested in the, in, a, in the hogweed <laughs> but, you know it works it's fine it's great why not why not sing about the hogweed well, see, that's that's happiness for for a young guy like me who's into science fiction and horror. Oh, yes. You know, all of a sudden now there's a story about this menace that's uh, attacking society. And those are my kind of lyrics as, as a young person. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then mythology with Salmasis. Um, so you, you, you touch on a thing there of the variety of topics and musical areas mm -hmm. yeah very much and and also again just just their education oh, who knew what what's, he, what's the fountain of this greek mythology and, and god knows what all of this stuff is um clearly things that peter gabriel must have been uh, ingesting during his time at charterhouse and uh he must have been incredibly well read for such a young chap, you know, if you remember, what is he, 21, 22, I suppose, to have read all that and been aware of, of, of all those fables. And, uh, and, and that's, I suppose that's where, that's, that's how great lyric writers uh, develop, is through, you know, the bookish thing. Rather than listening to uh, hours and hours of music on end, they probably spent as much time reading books. I tell my and, uh, students to read. I tell my students to read poetry. I mm -hmm. tell my students to to read <laughs> because that's yeah, it. words. And they obviously, you know, he obviously must have been as uh, in, in, entranced by the by the texts or whatever as he was by the by the music. So that's um, I guess that's that's where artists are born, isn't it? It's just. Uh, just the love of the uh, of the written word and of music. When you get get equal passion for both, stuff can really happen. I think to be fair, we should say that uh, all of Genesis was involved in lyric writing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Banks was a big lyricist in that case, mm -hmm. Rutherford, and uh, and so those ideas were all flying around. And of course, the three of them were all from Charterhouse. Yes, 
uh, they what that was the, the, they were very uh, generous in terms of you know they all they shared the songwriting credits five ways as on those early records which is very admirable uh, but I think it probably might have uh, ruffled a few feathers because you know who was responsible for you know it, I think we just assume the singer is always responsible for writing the lyrics it's usually the case but not always so it might have ruffled a few feathers and eventually they I think they probably did get uh, individual credits as time went by but I'd always assumed that Peter had uh, written not just the lyrics, but the little onstage stories that he used to tell while they were tuning those wretched 12 strings. Yeah, those became a big part of the show. <laughs> the, the musical box included them in the performances. Oh, well done. Good. Yeah. Um, some of them are quite fun and funny. Um, yeah. But yeah, the those are Peters, I think, it just in terms of surviving on stage, he mm -hmm. had to come up with something, you know, while they were trying to get it together uh, during a, a, a Mellotron breakdown or whatever. <laughs> did, did you think of this album? I mean, were you already aware of In the Court of the Crimson King at this point, Dave? Yes. Oh, yes. But the Court of the Crimson King you know, I, I, I probably, it was 21st century schizoid man. That was the big, big push forward for Crimson. I'm probably getting a bit off topic here. Okay. But the rest of the album, I kind of struggled with because basically I'd heard the Moody Blues do it. Well, it just sound, sounded like a retread of a couple of Moody Blues albums, eh? but they were ahead of the curve in that regard. Were it not for 21st century schizoid man, I probably would never have, or would, would probably have got around to hearing the record because it is a great album. Having listened a lot more closely since to, to other stuff other than schizoid man, <laughs> it, it does have some amazing moments on it. And uh, you know, the title track itself uh, the, in, the, in the court of the Crimson King is a great piece of prog writing. Uh, but at the time I was so knocked out with Schizoid Man, I, you know, everything else on the album from that point forward was a bit of a letdown, I'll be honest and say it. Flame away! But, uh, you know, I think some credit is due to the Moody Blues. I like that. Uh, the first, their first album, uh, sorry, the first album that Justin Hayward and John Lodge were involved with, uh, uh, you know, the, um, yeah. I've forgotten the bloody title. Is that Days of Future Past? Days of Future Past. Again, an important prog record that's seldom, you know, thrown up for consideration when it comes to... Uh, important movements in progressive music. Another one, of course, that's very rarely mentioned, if at all, family, music in a doll's house. And if you want to trace back uh, the influences of Genesis, I would suggest that album might have been in regular rotation at uh, Charterhouse School mm. in their teens, because it's uh, a stepping stone from, you know, psychedelic pop into progressive rock. And I think that album is as important as any other uh, from the summer of 68 that came out. And I think it's a very important stepping yeah. stone. 
I think Phil Collins has definitely mentioned family. Mm -hmm. And you can't deny it. Peter Gabriel's voice does bear, a, a, you know, a slight resemblance to Roger Chapman's in those early days. Not, he's not as extreme as Chapman, <laughs> but uh, the timbre is there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting because nothing occurs in a vacuum. And mm -hmm. I'm always interested, and I talked with several guests on this program about psychedelic rock being the precursor in so many ways to progressive rock. Mm -hmm. It's kind of proto-prog. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think it was a, a question of... Um, where the psychedelic bands were experimenting with sound effects and perhaps indulging themselves more in the studio to get away from that three minute restrictive 45 format. Uh, the next logical step was, well, um, let's extend our instrumental capabilities, practice a bit more and do some long solos and maybe find um, keyboard player who's had classical training and a drummer who can uh, who can do more than basic 4-4. It all, you know, people were at the time thinking, thinking ahead of being just a, a pop group or a chart success, you know, they were, they were thinking more seriously about the music. And the record companies were indulging it. They thought, well, here's, this is the future. Let's go with it. Let's sign these guys and see what happens. Um, of course, those days are long, long gone, but made made a mark, you know, made a big difference. Well, I often say, probably too often, though, that the um, the audience having had access to some basic school years, music education, music appreciation, basic music class in any, you know, once a week, even. I think that that contributed to the audience being able to deal with this stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was an interest in classical crossover around that time. If Very you much so. At, you know, the nice and you look at Switched on Bach and, and that was sort of a movement of making classical hip, integrating classical into rock music. Well, as I said, go back to the Moody Blues. That was what that... Um, um, uh, <laughs> I've forgotten the title. Days that of album, past. Days of Future Past. There you are. That's the classic, classical pop crossover record. Hmm. And um, that's, I think, you know, a lot of people thought, yeah, these these classical guys, the music's still there. People are still listening to it after centuries. Uh, so they must be good. It must be great music. Let's see what we can do and uh, see if we can equal some of the, try, try and get close to what they were doing. Maybe we'll last as long. I don't know. But certainly it was, that was considered to be, you know, the classical crossover thing was probably the next logical step in terms of uh, what the progression was likely to, to yield. I, I credit Keith Emerson with getting me excited about classical music. Very much so, yeah. He was very clued up. And, I and of course, classically trained. Very much uh, the real deal. And I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to thank him in person because mm -hmm. uh, when Jan Hammer 
grabbed the Mahavishnu project that I was doing to be his band at Moogfest in 06, it, it turned out to be an evening with Keith Emerson's band. Oh. And so it's oh, yeah, 06. And so I just went right up to Keith. I said, Keith, I want to thank you for turning me on to classical music. And he said, glad to be of service. <laughs> yeah, I saw him. He, I went to um, the first of the Prague Awards. Uh, this was this annual thing that Prague Magazine now does once a year. Well, they, the first one they did was at Kew Gardens in London. And uh, at the time, Tin Spirits had just signed with uh, Esoteric. And Vicky, Mark and Vicky Powell, who ran the label, managed to get me a ticket to, one, to the table. And uh, and there was Emerson. He was there on another table. And I thought, I must go and say something to this man because he's such a legend and he's been so important to me. You know, he he's just one of these musicians that belongs on a different planet almost because he's so good. And then I thought, I said, what am I going to say? To Keith Emerson and uh, while I was thinking this of course <laughs> other stuff was going on and he vanished uh, he, he left early and I never got to talk to him it was probably just as well because I'd have just crumbled yeah yeah a, a really really very very pivotal and influential musician and, and, and probably responsible for more people getting into progressive not just classical music but prog I think he's at the Nice and ELP are as important as Crimson and Genesis for that matter. And we should say then that Keith Emerson was a big fan of the Nursery Crime album. Did you know? Oh, that? yes. So he was, yes. And was yes, quoted was. about it yep. in the press. And he said it was an amazing, fantastic achievement. So, you know, that kind of endorsement. And I think also. Tony Banks was definitely inspired by Emerson and has said that the organ solo on Supper's Ready was a, a takeoff on Emerson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure that Keith Emerson was as important to keyboard players or especially Hammond organ players as uh, Eric Clapton was to anyone that plugged in a fuzz pedal. You know, uh, it's just um, some of these people, they, they just, they do what they do and uh, and it's like a Pied Piper thing, you know, the rest of us can only follow. Right. And, and certainly keyboardists did follow. Mm -hmm. uh, and bands didn't realize they needed a classically, classically trained keyboardist if they wanted to do that stuff. Yeah. And oh, there yes. Were... No easy way around that. Is, uh, you, have to, you have to practice and practice and just keep at it and keep at it. And I also find that keyboardists since they have the whole orchestra in a way at their fingertips are able to to t sort of cotton to composing a little bit easier because they're sort of dealing with the, the materials just by nature of playing the instrument it is the most logical a keyboard is the most logical way of learning about and creating music yeah. it's quite brilliant how it's how it's been designed i think i i don't know how they came up with this sort of eight white notes and five black ones and the way they're arranged and everything it's it all makes perfect sense and it's the quickest way to learn about music I, I've seen, you know i think piano lessons never mind the recorder or the violin or the stuff they throw at you at junior school get the kid on the piano 
and put some and show them where the notes are on the stave and everything. That's the quickest way to learn about how music works. And um, then then let them find their own way. Mm. Uh, if they want to keep with the keyboard, fine. But it'll, it'll set them off on, a, on the right foot for any other instrument they want to pick up. Yeah, agreed on that for sure. Um, well, let's talk about some of the tracks from Nursery Crime. Mm -hmm. How about the opening musical box? Great example of that dynamic concept we were talking about. They're going to wait. They're going to start the album with a few arpeggios, right? The arpeggios. That's let's hear it for the arpeggios because that's really the, that's what I love. I, and I I've borrowed so much for that of that in my own playing. But the thing that strikes me about the music box, I've never been able to figure it out. What is the instrument playing the little instrumental introduction piece? Because that only ever happens once. I think it is a musical box. Is it a real one or is it, I think I hear 12 string guitar, maybe an electric piano. I don't know. I've never been able to figure out exactly what it is. Perhaps one, you can enlighten me. One of the nice things about having played in a band called The Musical Box is the geekery level is quite high. Yes. And so little things like that become very interesting. That moment was always a problem for the Musical Box band because that's actually a sped up there's sped up 12 string involved. Ah, interesting. So it, it has almost that Les Paul twinkly thing that he did when he would do, you know, speed, speed changes. Mm -hmm. And that I think is mixed with an actual 12 string. So it became a problem where at one point the guy was playing with a capo to try mm -hmm. to get mm -hmm. that, that extra high sound, mm -hmm. that taut, sparkly sound. Um, and of course, that looked terrible on a Genesis stage, so that didn't happen uh, for long. But yeah, uh, that that's an interesting moment because I, it is involving a, uh, a sped up guitar. Oh, interesting. I shall listen with refreshed ears, see if I can figure out how they played it. Mm -hmm. Because it does, it, it, that, that would explain why it only happens at that point. Never returns, yeah. does it? That's just that those little few bars at the start. But it's the perfect introduction to uh, to the song, which is, you know, it's, it's in excess of 10 minutes long. I mean, it's a long piece and it tells <laughs> a very odd story, which is tied in, of course, with the sleeve, because we haven't actually mentioned the sleeves, Paul Whitehead's paintings. And I could just digress for a second. Uh, uh, when Big Big Train played there, debut concerts at uh, the King's Place in London in 2015. Uh, there was a sort of usual meet and greet downstairs after the show and who should be there at the merch desk, but Paul Whitehead himself with, I think he was maybe signing some books or some, maybe he had a book out or something. And he was very friendly, nice, nice old chap, very, very nice fellow. And he was chatting to people and I uh, went over and just said, oh, it's been such a fun. <laughs> Your paintings just summed up the music. You know, if ever there, there couldn't be a more perfect sleeve in which to wrap a Genesis record, your paintings. Also, <laughs> the little watercolors inside. Um, 
you know, you, you know what this is. And then you've got all, all the lyrics and these little paintings, all done by hand and just, just, just the love that's gone into it. And you can sit with this gatefold while the record's playing and read everything and look at the pictures and it all makes perfect sense and adds the enjoyment of the whole thing. And, um, and, and that image, is that, that kind of sums up the early genesis, that, that picture there. And he's even signed it here, um, copyright 1871 in the corner. So, and it's, and also the, if you have the original UK pressing, it's on a sort of textured cardboard thing that makes it look like it's painted on a canvas. And all three, first three albums all have that as well. So but that's the British pressing, which, which I'm quite jealous of. I think we had, we did not have the textured one and often, and I know fans will, will know what I'm saying here, but often I feel like the color is not always reproduced correctly from the original tint. Mm -hmm. That seems to be an issue too. Sometimes it's too green. Sometimes it's a little bit too dark, but yeah. We sometimes, yes, we, we sometimes had that problem with XTC. I remember the, the English settlement thing that Epic put out was just rubbish. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't actually, <laughs> one of the worst looking sleeves ever. Uh, like you say, because the, the tints were rather dyes were different and um you know they, they obviously didn't care enough about it but anyway that's by the by but yes you, that's another good reason for seeking out first pressings because you do get a, a nice thick usually nice nice thick cardboard outer and a decent solid lump of vinyl inside scratched as it may very well be but you know, it brings it so much closer to an art object. Yeah, very much so. It does, and it is an art object, which it is for us. Yeah. No, I would spend hours with my head in that thing. Oh. Yeah. Because it was a full. It it made it a full experience. You had the visual Absolutely. world. You had all the stories right there. You know, you had a little explanation too of the musical box lyrics that come yes. along. It's a bizarre story, but it's it's a fairy tale. Brilliant. I love it. And and a ghost story. As well. So that that's something again that would really appeal to a young Greg Bendian. Uh, there's a ghost story on there. There's some horrendous plant creatures. <laughs> there's some uh, mythology taking place there between Aphroditus and, uh, and uh, Hermaphroditus. Yeah, so the musical box has other interesting things that I wanted to talk to Dave Gregory about, and that is the dueling guitar and overdriven keyboard stuff. Yes, just very, very, and of course this was Steve Hackett's first album with the band so he was sort of a new boy and he had a lot of um he had a lot of work to do i, I you know he coped really well yeah because i yeah. know that a lot of that stuff was probably delivered by tony banks you have to play this and so uh, he had to devise i think he was one of the first people to use the uh, two-handed tapping technique uh which he probably yes i'm not sure yes he did. In, in electric, in electric. I think it had been done on acoustic in, in yeah. a Spanish classical piece. I, I can't remember exactly, but 
Yeah, mm -hmm. on electric first. Yeah. So that was a demanding job and uh, he coped really, really well. It's If you listen on headphones, it's a little bit, uh, it's not as tight as it could be. But then again, you see, that's where a lot of the magic often is. If it's too precise, if it's too, too perfect, a lot of the magic isn't, uh, it gets lost. Uh, you don't get the human feeling. Uh, but I like the fact that they are sort of, um, you know, jousting with each other and sort of, it, yeah, it, it it works. It works. It's really a uh, really interesting way of. Um, well, again, you know, it's, it's all down to how it was rehearsed and written, and the time it took to to to, to actually physically play it. You can hear he's kind of struggling a little bit, but he got there. And he's new, but contributes uh, for Absent Friends along with Phil Collins. Yeah. Now, does he sing on that? I know it's Phil Colin, Collins. That's the first first Collins vocal for Genesis. Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, and again, you know, on the original, on the record, when I first, I used to sort of uh, almost pass that song by because it was so quiet, and I couldn't really, you know, after the after all the noise of the musical box, and you've got this tiny little thing less than two minutes long, and I often used to just neglect it. Really, I've since come to love it. I do love uh, it. And, and I love the contrast. Lyric. It fills in that, yes. that, that contrast thing that they're going to do because you don't necessarily want to go right into an intense thing like hogweed. That's true. That's true. And, um, and I love the sentiment of the lyric that it's just this little moment observed probably by Collins of these two gentlemen sitting alone and uh, sort of at the end of the day. And there's that picture, of course, on the album. And yes. man, it's just so tender. And there's a line of something about um, a girl walks home with her gran or something. It's just a real piece of England. It, it, yeah, it's, it is quite lovely. And probably a bit too subtle and gentle for my, my teenage point of view at the time. That's probably why I didn't really dive headfirst into it. But you know, I was, I was more into the into the rockier stuff at the time, but I've since come to appreciate it. And these are guys who are like 19 and 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what can you tell me about about hogweed? Isn't it? It's funny, you know, I always thought that uh, lyrically it was like not only an odd subject for a song, but the, it wasn't really poetic. It was more sound of prosaic. It's like he was reading a story from a book. It didn't seem to, you know, the way it was. Uh, it took a while for. You know, I just thought at the time, thinking, yeah, well, uh, yeah, okay, I suppose it's possible. Yeah, it's, it's all right. Yeah, yeah, it's good groove, good groove. And then, uh, uh, as time goes by, you just think, well, that's that's the song, isn't it? It doesn't have to be perfect poetry or an or a, or a, or a earth-shattering lyric, you can just tell a little story to a musical accompaniment. And um, as unlikely as this story is, I mean, it's kind of true because there was this, uh, apparently there was a, a kind of, I wouldn't say a plague, but there were a lot of these um, huge plants were appearing over the English countryside from, from nowhere it seemed. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, he obviously took that as a theme and, and ran with it. 
as oh, though it was like as on a day of the Triffids or something. You beat me to it. Ah. Because I think, which is a British film, by the way, Day of the Triffids predates this in a very canny way, let's say. Okay, yes. It would make sense. Day of the Triffids, wow. Dave John Gregory. Wyndham. <laughs> well, you know, and here's another little uh, um, side thing. I, you probably know I'm diabetic. I've had diabetes now. I, I picked it up when I was 16 from, some, from I don't know what, it, anyway. So I was at school and I was reading The Day of the Triffids and uh, it was a penguin paperback. And I noticed that um, as I was getting through it, my eyesight was going. And I think, they, of course, the thing about the Triffids was that, you know, they slash you with these tendril things and you went blind. Right. I'm thinking this is a bloody realistic book because I'm really struggling to read this now. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I could hardly read the print. At the time, my diabetes hadn't been diagnosed. So it would have been the spring of 1969. And, uh, you know, as the, as the weeks passed, I, I started to feel a lot more unwell. Eventually I went to the doctor and they diagnosed this type one diabetes. I was rushed into hospital. The rest is history. And so, so that was an interesting, losing my eyesight as a result of diabetes whilst reading the day of the Triffids mm. and the way they, they, they conquered earth by striking the inhabitants blind. Mm. Again, Until, of course, the viruses wiped them out. Anyway, that's another story. But but the idea that um, they're taking ideas from from sci-fi books, they're taking ideas from everyday life, they're taking ideas from Victorian ghost stories, they're taking ideas from from all these different sources. Um, I'm a big fan of Seven Stones, and it's I, a lovely song. I vote it as as one of the undersung masterpieces or true deep cut musical box performed it probably only once really but what a powerhouse live show that kind of piece delivers you know uh, again super dynamic huge mellotron feature yes that lovely choral thing at the end that's just gorgeous mm. and um yeah, I'm not. It's. I'm not sure what the story is. It's just basically about um, you know a farmer, isn't it? It's sort of um, an agricultural theme, kinda. Well, it's another little, slightly supernatural run-in uh, about a man who is teaching that nothing matters; everything is by chance and how mm -hmm. other people are coming to him. I, th I think of him as a sort of uh, hermit or village philosopher, and they're yeah, coming okay. to him for advice. Mm -hmm. uh, they're looking, the characters are looking for uh, clues in nature. To, this is, it's kind of funny because it's a little bit like Rook. It's like looking for clues in nature to find meaning. Mm -hmm. And so there's this moment where you know, he finds seven stones on the ground and then connects that to finding shelter in the seventh house. Now, was that random or was that was that planned? And I think it becomes this whole question of. Are things planned? What is fate? I, I think that this becomes even 
a lyrical thing throughout Genesis, but you know, what is fate? What is chance? And so they, they tell the story through these encounters. The farmer doesn't, you know, the sailor needs to know about the seas. The farmer needs to know about when to plant. Are those things random? That's my take on it. I, I've kind of taken a deep dive in that piece and, and I do love it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great, it is a really, uh, and like I say, not very often, it doesn't come up for discussion very often. Not enough. And fans of the song do know, please, that there's a live version on YouTube that Genesis performed probably only once or twice, but there's an Italian concert from around that time where they played Seven Stones and it's fantastic live. Why do you think they never played it live? The ending? I don't know. I, I think that it probably didn't do what they wanted live and, and they thought, well, we don't, you know, we don't need this. I also think that there were time constraints on Genesis early on. Were they opening? Did they get a half hour? Did they get 45? Did they get an hour? And so, you know, they had to prioritize what would work in a show. And I think Seven sure. Stones, you know. But again, it just, I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. And I think a very big Banks composition also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, let me ask you this about Harold the Barrel, because it was my first Genesis song as well. This oh. just happened because my school, my middle school library had LPs, and you could go during library period to either read books of your choice, or you could go into the listening rooms with headphones, and they had nursery crime. So I couldn't have been older than 11 or 12. And Harold the Barrel just hit me as a piece of theater. Yeah, that's right. It's like a little show tune. Yeah. It's like it's plucked from a it's like it's plucked from a little mini opera or something. But isn't it great? It's just it's daft. It's got almost like a barbershop quartet in the background as well, adding these backing vocals. Villages. And that beautiful aside um, of, of Harold. Yes. Everything comes down, you know, and he's just dreaming. Take a running jump. That's yeah. a t that's an old English expression, you know. You take a running jump. Brilliant. Well, why do you think he was up there, Dave? Well, he'd had enough about of something. Why did he cut his toes off and serve them all for tea? We'll never know. It just sounded like a man who'd had enough of life and uh, and was determined to let the world know about it. You know, these story songs have an interesting effect on the listener. I feel like, as a young person, I, I, I literally felt badly for Harold. I was drawn in emotionally yeah. and I wondered, yeah, like, I'm asking you, tell me, because I always wondered what, what was the problem? What happened? <laughs> oh, I don't think I got quite as in, involved in it, in, on a personal level. Though I, have, uh, <clears throat> I wasn't that sympathetic. 
he was just it was just a story i don't know but yeah you're right why would a someone a restaurateur from a seaside town suddenly decide to um serve his toes up for dinner and um yeah well it's just just part of the storyteller's art isn't it it's just brilliant and a bit of (laughs) more of the macabre from those guys yes so from how the barrel that was as i say that was it was instantly likable because um you know had a nice jumpy beat it was instant you know it wasn't something you didn't have to listen to it too many times before you got it and then there was that nice uh, the the lovely um graceful outro the little coda the piano playing the outro with that high vocal note really nice effect um also should be mentioned lots of time changes and lots of key changes Yes, she was very disoriented throughout, very hustle and bustle. Yeah, but it all works. It, it all works perfectly. It was, it's not difficult to listen to, is it? It's not the sort of thing, it's not sort of time signature moving around for the sake of it. Right. Everything's there, but it, it, it all works nicely and uh, feels quite natural. And he does jump at the end, I guess. Yeah, maybe he does. Maybe that's that's the effect of that, uh, that, that high note, doomy piano and the high note. Yeah, well, yeah, it's I lovely stuff. Still feel bad for Harold. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> I think it's great that you uh, you should become so emotionally involved with him that it's uh, you know it's clearly affected you, Greg. I think it's uh, you know maybe. I'm sure he's all right. He's gone to a better place. <laughs> Dave, you're not making me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, though. Um, these songs were the beginning of a different kind of approach to engaging, I think, lyrically. You know, mm-hmm. um, I often talk about with Prague Rock, what are you going to write about? What are you going to sing about? Are you going to sing Baby, I Love You? or I'm so broken up that we are no longer together. I mean, these, these options were very limited coming into this music. Yeah. And, you know, that was really kind of, probably put a lot of people off, yes, because John Anderson certainly wasn't the sort of fellow to, um, this is, you know, another tangent we're going off, I'm going off on now, but I think that was probably, uh, if anyone wanted to throw stones at yes, that's the first thing they'd pick on is the, the idiotic lyrics, which which didn't make a lot of sense, to be honest. And it wasn't even great poetry, in my opinion. He, 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 did, uh, he did improve over time, I think, but a lot of it was a bit hippy-trippy, nonsensical stuff. It was really there to, to prop up the music <laughs> a well, little when bit. Did, when did it improve, Dave? Well, um, I would say uh, around about the time of Close to the Edge where it does kind of, uh, it, it is more fantastical. It makes more sense with the music that's going on. But I mean, I couldn't tell you what Yours Is No Disgrace is about. And I love it as a piece of music and I love his vocal as well. He's a great, great singer. But um, the song as a song means absolutely nothing to me other than it's a great piece of music and the band are fantastic. <laughs> and so is the singer. But uh, I wouldn't write the lyrics out in my, um, teenage notebook and 
sing myself to sleep. Yeah, it's just, it just made no sense at all. But that, that's by the by. So at least here with Genesis, you had lyric writers with something to say and a way of saying it that, that was engaging. And, you know, as fantastical as it was, it was, it was good literature. I quite like the lyrics to Harlequin, though I don't claim to really know what it's about. What's your take, yeah. I love Harlequin. And uh, as I think I mentioned to you earlier, it's, I think, hands down now, all things considered, it's probably my favourite Genesis song of all time. Wow. I can imagine two guitarists sitting opposite each other, figuring out those changes and just the way it's all locks perfectly, the little modulations. It must have been such a joy finishing that off. And, uh, and then having that lovely uh, vocal, the beautiful vocal refrains, that gorgeous vibraphone that just appears out of nowhere just to colour the middle section. Uh, it's just gorgeous. But as I say, that's what I've just been, because of course, listening to the album, for this interview, uh, I'm sort of discovering stuff that I'd probably overlooked in the past, and this is definitely one of them. And I just realised now, this is such a great song, and uh, I've never really given it its a, a fair shout. Till now, understanding it's it's a Michael Rutherford composition. Mm -hmm. Could very well be, it's because it's all. 12 string guitars, two 12 strings, from what I can hear, it sounds like two 12 string guitars, finger styly, and just, just really, really good musical writing, proper, proper intelligent writing, really, really well arranged. It really is. Um, also seems to harken back to me to be material that he might have developed originally with Anthony Phillips. Possibly, very much, yes. I would, yes, there's definitely a throwback to the uh, the Trespass era, that's for sure. And we know that, I was going to say, we know that Anthony was a major musical force in the early days. He had, uh, you know, a few personal issues that meant that he wasn't able to carry on with the band. And, you know, and the fact that he's he was so missed by all the bands, because people when people leave bands, they're usually, uh, you know, they're never mentioned again. <laughs> it's a kind of, they're pariahs, you know, to the other to their bandmates. What do you mean you've, you're you're leaving? You know, but he uh, quite the opposite. They still, I think, the other guys in Genesis still have a lot of time and respect for him, and he he must have uh, must have been literally instrumental in in getting them at least a record deal and, uh, and getting them some respect as songwriters and what have you. Yeah, well, and the in band... fact, Anthony, he came to, um, when we played at, uh, the last gig I played with Big Big Train was in London in 2009 at the Empire in Hackney. And he came come along as a guest. And I saw him there and I thought, I must go and say hello to him and shake his hand and uh, introduce myself. Never got the opportunity because it was such a hubbub. But it was great to see him there, and apparently he's a fan. So um, that that's really nice to know. Yeah, yeah, you can hear his contributions. You know, uh, kind of oozing on to musical box. 
and, yeah. and that that 12 12 string thing that uh, he and Rutherford developed was such an important part of their sound going on well into selling England. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Not not really going to show up as much on on the Lamb, but but certainly for a few albums there, they're mining that pastoral vibe that they got from that. Yeah, very much so. Yes. It's interesting that uh, a band would have access to two twelve-string guitars or three, because <laughs> or even three. That's right, because of course Tony Banks plays as well through a Leslie. Yeah. Amazing. No wonder, <laughs> poor, um, no wonder Peter had a, a, you know, had his work cut out between songs, didn't he? Sometimes, mm -hmm. but yeah, no, that that's uh, it's, it's just great. It's great what they do because it's like a sort of, um, I suppose it's similar to um, the mandolin effect. You know, you've got these pairs of strings, these courses as they call them, of strings and. Uh, some are an octave apart and some are in unison and they're seldom in tune, but creates an, creates an ambience that's, uh, you know, not, not easily duplicated by anything else. No, uh, you're right, though. The, the, the imperfection of the resonate, resonating between the strings is a big part of it. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, the album, I think ends with one of the first lasting prog masterpieces for me fountain of salmasis agree I, I will point it up to anyone as do you want to know what prog rock is this is what prog rock is that's right it's got the lot hasn't it swelling mellotrons ebbing and flowing and uh you know, this it's a lovely drum track as well. And then this this bizarre tale of uh, well, it's is it is it Greek mythology? Is that what it is, or is it? Uh, I, I don't think know. it's Greek. Yeah, yeah. I know nothing about these these fables. It's just a great piece of music. It's a lovely piece. Of, again, no spare flesh on it. Everything works. It takes you on a trip. And it's a great story, and you can read all about it in the in the on the on the album sleeve as well. Yeah, we did this um, about ten years ago with Big Big Train. They 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 came up. They had this idea for a song called "The Wide Open Sea," and I knew that Greg Sporton was a huge Genesis fan, and, uh, and again, it had these sort of this mellotron in it. I knew exactly where he'd stolen the idea from. And uh, so I, and it had these big swells, and it was like uh, the ebbing and flowing of, a, of tidal waves. And um, so, so that was, you know, I knew what he was thinking about. It made progress through the rest of that long track. It's about twenty minutes long, I think. Wide open sea. I knew pretty much the course it was going to take, having having listened to again to the Fountain of Salmasis and realizing spark of its inspiration did big big train play cover any genesis tunes not that not when i was there no i don't know if they did before you know back in the early 90s when they uh when they first started playing pubs mm. i think it's possible i don't know but no we um 
there was always more than enough original material with those with those guys to do any covers at all except we did cover anthony phillips um song geese and the ghost what was it called uh, master of time oh yeah that's a beauty uh, yeah that was the one song that did cover i think so something yeah, yeah it I was love, fun it was I loved, that. I loved how in in fountain of salmas is the uh, the feel during the the quiet verses you know the the water tasted strangely sweet phil is playing a swing feel yeah he really is uh, it's well again first album for him wasn't it and yet he just fitted in like the drums aren't really highlighted are they it's not they're not high in the mix at all so when you listen to what he's playing you know it's like he's been doing it his whole life um it, i can't imagine another drummer <clears throat> achieving what he did with those with those amazing amazingly complicated arrangements he you know Everything he's he 19 was, he's probably 19 at the time He's influenced by Michael Giles and by Bill uh -huh. Bruford, but has, yeah. and of course, uh, jazz drummers, but has this, has a feel and a touch and a musicality with the cymbals, with orchestrating what he's going to do in these pieces, including, and I've had so many joyful moments backing up acoustic guitars and quiet vocals with a little bit of hi-hat. Yeah. I mean, that's the magic. Yeah. so beautiful. If you can marry a hi-hat to an acoustic rhythm guitar, there's magic there. And that's what I used to love about the shadows when I first started listening. I loved Hank Marvin's guitar playing, but this is what Bruce Wells is doing with Brian Bennett. There's this great sort of, yeah, it's all part of that whole, the rhythm. Uh, it's like having an extra pick almost. It is, it's very and, textural, uh, it's very percussive uh, yeah. on the guitar. So the, yes. it's, a, it's a meeting of this little picky thing. It's magic. I love that. I'm glad you brought that up. Because again, these, these little subtle touches. Well, it's what were you going to do? I mean, you can sit out. You can certainly lay out, right? He did that. And then there he could do finger symbols. He did that. And then he could do little which I think are very post Michael Giles symbol things that would, you know, remember yeah, how, yeah. how integrated the symbols were on a new court of the Crimson King for a drummer. Yes, that's yes. Just heaven. We're like, Oh, ding, 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 ding. That's a solo. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> that's your drum solo. Okay, great. Perfect. But, but again, and I, and I'll tell you one other funny thing because you and I are both good friends of Mike Keneally. When I was recording his uh, album, Scambot 2, there's a track on there called Pretzels. Yes. And he knew me well enough to say to me, now, Greg, when we get to this part, I want you to play the cymbals as if Michael Giles was in Gentle Giant. <laughs> well, that's an instruction. Can do. Can do. <laughs> I know exactly. The interesting what thing about uh, Scambot 2, incidentally, since you mention it, it's one of those rare things where the sequel is actually better than the original. I really I was very impressed with Scambot 2. 
Wow. They're both great, of course. I mean, they're both fantastic. And they'll last forever because, you know, I can go back to them and hear stuff that I completely missed first time around or even sixth time around. Right. So much detail. Well, you know, so, Mike, Mike is quite a composer and quite a musician. And, uh, you know, it's a joy to play music with someone that agrees that we're still dealing with that level of detail that we experienced as as early musicians through Genesis, Zappa, Giant, Yes, all these bands. If we're going to be creating stuff now, you kind of have to look at that as your, I don't know what you'd call it, your your palette. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, Mike has his own way of doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we've had a lot of fun with that sort of thing because we, we share all these references. You know, so you can always say, and then there was another thing on that same album where he said to me, now think of it more as a drumbo tom-tom part. Okay, yeah, I know what that means. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so what do you think, Dave? I mean, it's 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 a it's a album also that ends with a big guitar solo, and it's a small guitar solo. Hmm. Yes. Well, I just, yeah, I just can't do it. It ends on a huge chord, like as, the, as all the best prog epics do. But it ends on this big, big Lydian, this Lydian ride out, which, yes. you know, playing this, this uh, melodic solo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it, then the album just suddenly finishes, doesn't it? It's all over. And I always think that this may be just for one, one last song, maybe. Uh, but of course, it's, it's already, you know, best part of 40 minutes has gone by. So there isn't really room for another song on a, on a vinyl record. I think, you know, vinyl was, was definitely a factor in these things. And even mm -hmm. in The Court of the Crimson King is a short album. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always yeah. felt like there should be one more in the middle there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe <laughs> they could have uh, snipped out 10 minutes of Moon Child and put a decent song in there. I knew you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's been discussed. <laughs> Funnily enough, I went, uh, I was lucky enough to be invited to a, a Crimson Friends and Family gig uh, a couple of Christmases ago. Yvonne and I went down and, uh, and they started playing Moonshine. So I, just, I said to Yvonne, oh, this is, a, this is a lovely melody. This is great. But um, I might have to go to the toilet in a minute. <laughs> anyway, they, they just played two or three minutes and moved on. So I thought, well, that's, yeah, I think that's appropriate. So maybe Robert had got the message. I don't know. It's, they, they did play it on, on the uh, 50th anniversary tour. Oh, they did, but in in Toto. <laughs> no, no. In fact, it's it it becomes like a upright bass solo for Tony Levin, I think. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And I always found it funny that Greg Lake does not partake in the free improvisation on Moonchild. Mm -hmm. It's really just a trio, and Ian McDonald's playing vibes. Oh yeah, oh is that so? And the other thing about going back to the final. Uh, thing about, I mean, you know, skits, um, 
Court of the Crimson King, very, very dynamic record. Lots of very quiet moments, again, in Moonchild especially, when quite often, the way we used to treat our records, after a few plays, all you'd hear is pops and crackles. You'd have a job to hear the music. Um, that's one thing we can thank the digital process for, I guess, to uh, struggle to hear music under all the dirt anymore. Mm. But um, I remember, you know, a lot of copies of that album got pretty mashed up and, uh, and, and certainly on side two, a lot of it, you know, the signal to noise ratio was, you know, kind of maybe 50-50 at best. I mean, I know people swear by vinyl, but I don't miss the noise factor. Oh, no, you can, well, I found a method of getting rid of a lot of the noise. Uh, it's a product called Mr. Sheen. So I've mentioned this to people and they say, you're not spraying your records with that stuff. I guess it works. It does, huh? Gets rid of a lot of surface noise. It's anti-static. It's an anti-static cleaner. It's just a it's household cleaner. Mm. And uh, gets all the dust out, stops it. If you, as long as you leave it in the sleeve and put it away properly, keeps, it'll stay, stay clean. You have to wipe the dust off every time you play it, but it'll stay pretty damn clean and reduces surface noise no end and your stylus lasts forever and do you go with a very fancy stylus i've got an autophon om10 i think it is but or or you know whatever the latest um aftermarket version is it's not particularly high end but it's fine for me in this little room it sounds great it sounds really good uh it's a What's that? What is that deck? Let me just—you've asked me now. I've got to tell you. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a project, project uh, with a, an autophon cartridge, and um, and I've had a couple of old Tannoy speakers that I've had for about thirty years, and they've never—they they always they just sound they sound fine, man. They sound just fine. I need five point one. I don't need. JBLs. I don't need anything fancy. Not in here. Hmm. No, I know the Tannoys. They're they're solid. I'm very happy with those. Dave, uh, I've spoken a little bit about my playing Genesis music. I'd love to hear some of your experiences with with performing any of their stuff. Hmm. Well, uh, Tin Spirits covered back in NYC. It's one of the first things we learned to play. It was uh, something that, you know, I'd been playing for some time because I used to, I just used to use the little, uh, the 7-4 thing on my 12-string guitar. It just sort of fell under my, even though it's played on synths, I think, on the on the original record. I used to use it as a little exercise, picking exercise. And I used to love just going around the changes because it just fell under the fingers quite naturally. And I'm fairly certain. But uh, it was probably another of Mike Rutherford's ideas, as he's, uh, you, I know he's a big fan of 12-string guitar, obviously. And um, and then it, the, we came to this sort of the, the, the quirky synth, the moog bit that connects the chorus to the verse, which took a bit of working out. But we got there, Daniel and me, and we had a lot of fun playing that. And... Uh, 
there were no keyboards. I was one of the Tin Spirits rules, no keyboards until we've used all of Dan's pedals. Once we've, once we've used all of Dan's pedals, he's got about 600 of them, then we'll think about using keyboards. And so uh, we did it all on, on guitars and we put it on the first LP, um, Wired to Earth. And once it, I noticed and it always, Sorry, go I was going to say it was it's a fun one to play and always went down well live because amongst our you know original stuff it was nice for the audience to hear uh, a familiar song. Most of the audience, most of the people we played to were prog fans anyway so they knew what we were doing and um, it, the set we, we did play sort of like 50% original and 50% covers. And that was one of the first we did. And we decided, you know, because it, because we had such a fun doing it, we'd put it on the uh, on our first album and uh, so, and where it remains to this day. It's a it's a bit of a, a Genesis rocker in a way. Yeah, very much so. It is. Vocal especially, it's real full on. Um and because it's taken from you know, a much bigger and more elaborate production, you know, the, the Lamb being a, a, well, what could loosely be described as a concept album, <laughs> as far as we can tell. Um, it's, it is one of the rockier, rockier moments on that record. I, I think you'll find it interesting that when the musical box played that piece, it was art pro soloist, 12 string and Les Paul, all doubling that figure with the one foot bass note. Yes. And, but everybody had delay. And I oh. think that that contributes a little bit to the dug, 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 yes. dug, dug, you know? And Daniel I, definitely had uh, some slapback on his guitar, remember now? Yes, he did. Yes. I think it's baked in, you know, to the composition. Yeah, I, I no, it was that. fun. It was a fun one to play. I I did enjoy that, and I think it was just brutal on Peter Gabriel's voice every night to play that. Mm. Especially that, if he was dressed as a slipper man. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not at that point, but certainly <laughs> slipper man. Yeah, that was an issue. <laughs> and didn't you also play "Supper's Ready"? Well, no, uh, never played it live. No. What happened? What, well, I don't you know what I, I had this some um, hobby of recreating some of my favorite pop songs from way back at home on a little eight track Fostex. I had a Fostex R8 tape recorder and uh, an old Mackie desk. And I would amuse myself no end by reproducing uh, various songs from, from my youth. I just loved getting my head into these songs and figuring out what was going on and just seeing if I could reproduce it, see how close I could get to the original studio recordings. And also I was curious to know whether it might be possible for me working from home without having to spend a fortune in a recording studio and not knowing what I was going to come out with, whether I'd be able to produce finished masters from home. So that was a start. It was basically, you know, trying to uh, kill a number of birds with a, with this one stone. 
and I'd put them all together on a, a, an album I called Remolds, and they were all, most of them, the majority, were done over a long period of time, maybe five or six years in my spare time. Uh, and then one, one around Christmas of 98, I decided it's time I, I took this to the next level. I know, I'm going to spend 1999 recreating Supper's Ready on this tape recorder in my spare bedroom. And uh, first thing I've got to do is make a map of the rhythm track, 23 minutes of it. And I'd figured out as well that uh, the five and a half inch reels at seven and a half IPS would run for exactly 23 minutes on this Fostex machine. So I, I can't afford to do any edits. It's all gonna to have to be done in one long pass, but using a sequencer, breaking the sequences song by song, but I could use still use the code, but there'd be breaks in it so that I could uh, run the sequencer as and when it was required. And so, it, I began in January and uh, started listening to, uh, well, having, having written out the map of the, the rhythm track, bar by bar, with all these separate sections, I then decided that uh, it was then, the next step was to program Phil Collins' drums when he was playing. So there are a lot of uh, empty places as well. So where he wasn't playing, there'd be a click. And uh, where he was playing, I would teach the sequencer these, these drum parts. And it, I did it quite literally bar by bar over 23 minutes. And you can imagine by the time I got to Apocalypse in 9.8, which certainly is in 9.4, it's not in 9.8, it's 9.4. <laughs> and so that was challenging, but I bloody did it. it took weeks and weeks and weeks bar at a time, listening, listening, what did he, oh, what's that, oh, how did he do that? He's only got a pair of hands. That's not possible. He must have stopped playing the hi-hat at that point to do that. All these little details. Anyway, I had, I got, became obsessed with it. And uh, as I say, it took maybe six or seven months. And then it came time to do vocals. And I had one track. Once I was satisfied with all the instrumental stuff, uh, it was the track that had the code on it. And I, and I thought, right, well, that's going to have to be the vocal track. It's track eight, right on the edge of the tape, worst possible place you could put a vocal. Um, anyway, at that point, uh, my friend David Longdon, who is a current vocalist with Big Big Train, he had just... I knew that he'd been working with Genesis as uh, hopefully as a replacement for Phil Collins having quit as vocalist and drummer. And they were working on this album that was gonna be called Calling All Stations. And he'd been rehearsing with them for maybe six or seven months on and off. And uh, had eventually been given the heave ho, you know, and they'd found somebody else. And he wasn't, he wasn't at all happy about it, I can tell you. It went on for that long, Dave? Yes. I, I think he, was, he wasn't living with them that long, but it was over that uh, six-month period where he'd be going down to their studio uh, and he'd be, spend a few days 
And then he'd come back and he'd, he'd be bringing material to them, lyrics and what have you. Everything was going fine, apparently. I don't know the full story, so take this with a pinch of salt. But um, having gone through all of, having done all this prep work, uh, they then changed their minds and uh, decided they were going to bring in somebody else. I didn't know that story. So David, uh, yeah, no, so David was not, as you can imagine, he wasn't very happy and he was telling me this story and and I, I told him, uh, it's funny, it's odd you should mention Genesis because I've just, uh, I'm in the middle of doing, um, of, of doing a cover of Supper's Ready. He said, are you, are you doing what? That's a bit of a project. I said, yeah, it's, it's taken, <laughs> I've become obsessed. It's taken months. I must come and sing it. And I said, uh, oh, well, it's too much work, Dave. It's just, you know, I wouldn't work. Dave, I've got to sing this. I've got to sing it. Please let me come and sing it. <laughs> oh, David, I mean, look, I'm, I'm happy. Look, I'll pay you. It's no, I don't want that. No, I don't want I don't want a penny. I want the opportunity to sing this song. Please let me do it. I says, well, if you insist, David, by all means, be lovely. So bless him. He came down, we had a weekend here in my house. He sang it through just brilliantly. In, and and we, I, I'd set aside the whole weekend to do this. He had it covered on the Saturday. So we had the Sunday free to just muck about. And uh, it's done, it is done. And this was, a say, it's been lying in my, uh, it, it, on my hard drive now for, for well, since 1999. I think that's when I went, when it was mixed. Was it, or maybe, no, that's right. No, he sang it in the summer of 99. And then I heard, then I wanted to, to just get away from it. And I didn't mix it because it was a lot of mixing involved as you can imagine. So I left it there for about 18 months and I came back to it and re-examined it. Thought actually, you know, this isn't too bad. I think I can probably, I can rescue this. It's not uh, because I, I, you know, I could hear all the flaws. Having heard so, <laughs> so many times, I could hear everything that was wrong with it, and nothing was right. David's vocal, absolutely fantastic. So um, I did a mix and uh, sent a copy off to David, and he, he he was really because you have to remember that David, part of his motivation for doing it was to kind of prove something to himself that he could do a Peter Gabriel vocal and do it justice, despite what his bandmates thought of him. I don't think they were unpleasant. I don't think the guys in Genesis, I think they probably uh, felt some regret at having um, you know, maybe led, led David along for as long as they did. In fact, Tony Banks did come to a Big Big Train show and really enjoyed himself, apparently. This was when we played at Cadogan Hall. Again, I didn't get to meet him, but um, I gather they were, they were quite friendly and everything. He enjoyed the show, so that was that was nice. But uh, at some point, you know, who knows? It might see the light of day. I was going to put it on a sort of remolds compilation of prog uh, classics because I'd done a number of them. I did a, a cover of uh, Wishbone Ash's uh, "The King Will Come," which is one of my favourite, probably my favourite Wishbone Ash song, and I loved the guitars on it. Yeah, I had a blast doing that. I loved it. Yeah, but not I, I people, can't really. Not enough people to talk about Wishbone Ash. Wishbone Ash is interesting. 
they were a great, they were my favorite guitar band in 1972 through to 72 that that two year period i dreamt of being in a band as good as wishbone ash the guitars they were such great players and i've seen them since i saw them recently maybe 5 years ago and andy Bells, right yeah it's just andy and three guys all great players all really really good players um, and I don't know why they kind of fell from favour. I know that the fourth album they did, that uh, once they'd left Miles Copeland and they'd they decided to produce it themselves. Well, it was a real letdown in the fourth record. The first three are priceless. I urge anyone who has any interest in electric guitar and how to get a great sound out of a guitar and play with feeling and taste, listen to those records and learn because uh, that's some of the best British rock guitar ever recorded, in my view. Um, but yeah, sorry, that's, a, that's an old guitar player ranting now. No, you heard it here. I, I, I'm always happy to hear about Wishbone Ash. I did get to see them actually in New Jersey. Recently? No, it would have been over 10 years ago, but they, they mm -hmm. were here and I was there. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, they're still great. Still, still really committed because there must be, you know, kind of in the seventies now. At least Andy Powell must be. He must be seventy now. Yeah, he still plays really, really, really well. Hmm. What were the other uh, remakes you've done, Dave? Yeah, that's right. Let's have a think. Um, oh, I did a cover of um, the Blind Faith song, Had to Cry Today, but I let myself down with the vocal. I can't, I can't do Steve Winwood. Who no, who can indeed. Uh, yeah, that was one of them. Oh, gee, I can't remember. Because uh, there were a couple of proggy things on um, remolds, like Jack Bruce's uh, Tickets to Waterfalls. And... Um, uh, Our Prayer, the, the Beach Boys song, which oh, I, right. I worked out all the vocals and did those. That was that was fun. That was, that oh, was really wow. nice. That's a gorgeous piece. Yeah, isn't it just, oh man. And going back to what I was going to mention earlier, because I, I saw one of the early Brian Wilson shows when, the, I think it's when it was the um, Smile uh, tour and they came to England and they started their live set, it was again at the Colston Hall in Bristol, started their live set with a cappella versions of the early Beach Boys hits. Oh. Uh, they did maybe 20 minutes, 11 voices. They had Brian sitting on a little stool in the centre of the stage. They all stood around him and sang. Uh, there probably were a couple of overhead mics, but they just sang these songs. It was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever experienced. I sat in my seat and I was virtually in tears. I could feel myself welling up. I don't know where it came from, but the sound of those voices singing those songs that closely to me had a profound effect. No lie, I've never ever experienced music like that. I really think I recently listened to Our Prayer because I was pulling out uh, Beach Boys stuff for the nice weather and uh, having a stereo system in my in my backyard um our prayer should cinch it for anyone that wonders about brian wilson's musical and vocal arranging abilities 
are. And there's another one on one of the reissues. There's a track called Unfinished Backgrounds. I don't know if you're aware of it. He sings a high line solo, and then the other guys sing the accompaniment to that high line in, in harmony. Holy, and what it actually is, is an outtake from uh, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. Oh. And why did they not put that on the album? I can't, it's, it's so beautiful. Uh, and, they, and as I say, as a reissue, it's just, it, the, uh, the, the, the Put Your Head on My Shoulder isn't mentioned. It's just called Unfinished Backgrounds. Okay. Well, personally, that particular song is a highlight of Pet Sounds for me. It's just the most stunning emotional musical composition. Again, hardly ever mentioned. Everyone raves about God Only Knows, obviously, and... Uh, <sighs> Well, you know that the one for for me was in 2014 when Keneally, Bendy, and Lunn were going out. Uh, we decided we would do really bizarre covers in addition to our original material. And I pushed Mike and I said, you know, surfs up, surfs up from from Smile. You know, never yeah. finished really, um, or at that time. And we would perform Surf's Up, uh, I think there was an encore at the end of the shows, and Mike would always introduce it by saying, this song uh, asks ask the question, are the Beach Boys Prague? Mm -hmm. There's know? no question about it. it it's, he's, he was so, so far ahead. And... Um... <sighs> Again, it just, what was he, 22? Uh, I, I don't know. When Pet Sands was made, I'm not sure how old would he have been. Early 20s, yeah. Early 20s. It is extraordinary. And to have had those amazing voices to work with as well, you can't deny that. That was quite a plus. Hey, Dave, you know, since you mentioned the Beach Boys, I was always knocked out by XTC's take on the Beach Boys. You know, there are a few there, I, I, but I, I'll go with a less likely one, maybe, that than people would think, but Pale and Precious. Mm-hmm. Oh. And we kind of, you know, <sighs> Pale and Precious, should we have kept that back for the next XTC record? That was always my question. We were working on Sonic Sunspot with John Leckie down at uh, the Sawmill Studio. And he had this song. I said, this is such a lovely song, Percy. Sure, you want to throw it away on the Dukes? Because we're still in parody mode. Right. He said, well, you know, let's just see how it goes. I said, because well, this is just, um, this sounds like something off Smiley Smile or what could have gone on Smiley Smile had they bothered to work a bit harder on it. Um, and I found... Uh, this little keyboard motif on the synth that we had that sounded similar to, you know, 1967. Uh, there was a little harmonium, wasn't there? A pedal harmonium or something they were using. And, um, and then Andy uh, just had this, uh, it was just a gorgeous song. 
really, really lovely. And then <laughs> he decided to do this surf middle section. And uh, my brother was, um, you know, he was playing drums on it. And, but for some reason he couldn't get the swing that Andy wanted for this center section. So uh, I think Andy had to go in and, and do it himself with uh, doing the drums separately. Just that little section. Mm. And, um, but yeah, again, it's a lovely song. Really, really, really shows Andy as, you know, even when he's taking the mickey, he can still be brilliant. Yeah, or, um, or just, you know, throwing off uh, Mole from the Ministry at the last minute. Probably one of the, my favorite things we ever did as XTC. There's that, there's, and there was also um, Then She Appeared, which would, I think that was probably earmarked for Sonic Sunspot oh, and was passed over. And um, <clears throat> Gus Dudgeon heard the demo and said, oh, we've got to do this. This could be a single. This is really great, blah, blah, blah. And Andy didn't really, wasn't too crazy about it. Should have been a single. Yeah, I think so. But at the time, you see, it didn't have the chiming Nashville tune 12-string guitar. That was something, I was putting some strings on uh, Rickenbacker guitar, 12-string guitar, Chipping Norton Studios, and Dave Mattox was, uh, you know, we were chatting, I was chatting with him, and he said, he said have you ever strung any of your 12-string guitars in Nashville tuning? I said, what's that? He said, well, you just put the six high strings on and leave off the, the wound ones. So you just get this sort of discount effect. I said, oh. He said, yeah, you, you, can, you can overdub that onto an acoustic guitar and electric guitar, and it has a really nice scintillating effect. So I said, oh, I've never, never heard of it. So I, I left the fat strings off and just tuned the guitar up with this skinny, the skinny strings. And uh, we were about to do about to record, then she appeared, and this little phrase came out of uh, came out of nowhere in this Nashville tuning, ding 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 ding, ding bong, like a little musical box. Yeah. And uh, Gus Dutchin heard it and said, "That's the intro. That's the sound of this song. Go on, put it on now." So that's how, how the song started. And of course, as soon as he heard that. And that was overdubbed onto the onto the track. He said, "Yeah, this is a single. This is a, that's the hook of the song. That's great." You know, he was really up for it. But Andy, I don't know, he didn't think it was uh, worthy of uh, that much attention, I guess. You know, when but I it just goes to show what can happen when the drummer suggests you do something that you weren't <laughs> expecting. No. No, it's got to come from a different source. The drummer can't suggest it. No. <laughs> I, I can attest to that. Unless oh, the, the drummer becomes the band leader and then he can suggest anything he wants. He, he can go anywhere he wants, exactly. You know, I, I was always touched by your written take on, uh, on Nonsuch about the Gus Dudgeon situation and how um, you were much more on board for his his work on the album than I think Andy was. But but I, from your perspective, what was Gus Dudgeon bringing to XTC at that moment? Well, he brought the legend, 
and he brought his experience and his proven track record as a hit producer, a man who knew what a hit song was and how to produce one. Normally, of course, he doesn't encounter resistance. He, uh, he was just, I, I loved him. I, I thought he was a real character. He wasn't a musician, but he was a great vibe merchant. He really, he was funny, you know, he had a really great personality, great sense of humor, lots of experience, loads and loads of stories, always entertaining. Always. And I used to look forward to the end of the day's recording when we just, after dinner, we might do a few final little touches up after dinner. And then we just crash out, have a beer and start talking, especially if Dave Mattox was there, because Mattox and, uh, and Gus had worked together for years and years. So they would always have reams of fables and they were always very entertaining. <laughs> Funny. So for me, I'm thinking, hang on a minute. This is Gus Dudgeon. He was Mike Vernon's engineer at Decker. He worked on practically all those Blues Breakers albums, the great guitar bands that I grew up, the reason I play guitar, listening to those records. And here he is working on my record. What am I doing here? How did I get here? This, what, what am I doing in a room with Gus Dudgeon? Because he's... He's in charge, I'm happy to have him in charge. And he didn't see things quite that way. And so, uh, and of course the great thing, the thing I loved about Gus was he wasn't backwards in coming forwards. If it's something on his mind, he would just blurt it out. He didn't care We upset in the process. And that was fine because he knew where you stood. He could be a little bit brutal sometimes. I remember there was an incident, and I had some sympathy with Andy at this point. We were working on Rook and Gus didn't like the song. He thought it was uh, not, didn't, he thought it was okay, but didn't fit with the rest of the stuff on the album or the way he saw it. And as this was uh, one of Andy's real pet sounds, Rook, and rightly so, it's a, it's a great piece of music. Um, he was frustrated by, uh, Gus's, shall we say, lack of enthusiasm for it. And um, I wanted, it was some, there was some issue about strings, whether to uh, use real strings or synth. I can't remember what the argument was. And it got a bit heated. And uh, Andy said to Gus at one point, uh, well, you know, if we do it like such and such and such, what happens if that doesn't work? He said, well, just bin it. Gus said, well, if it doesn't work, we'll bin it. And I thought to myself, hmm, that's probably not the best advice a producer could give an artist. So, you know, there was a bit of yin and yang there. Um, but for all his bluster, I think he was, uh, he made the sessions, most of the recording sessions, apart from a couple of isolated incidents, were lots of fun and he brought a great vibe into the studio. And as I say, I was in awe of his legend. I even put together um, a little compilation cassette. Uh, we had a, a, an equipment breakdown. So we had some time spare while the engineers fixed this machine. And uh, I said, Gus, I've got this cassette here. With all This is all stuff you've worked on. Just like your point of view on some of these songs. There was things like 
very unfaithful and uh, some, of the, some of the blue stuff he'd done with Mike Vernon and a whole bunch of things. And there would always be a tale to tell. <laughs> I can't remember them all now. But I think he was quite flattered by the fact that I'd even bothered to recognize his name on the, on the label credit or whatever. You know, he was just doing a job. You know, he's the man that created Eric Clapton's guitar sound on that Beano album. He was the man that uh, Clapton instructed place a microphone six feet away from his amplifier to get the sound of the room. So he could turn the, the volume up on the guitar. And uh, that was a time completely against standard engineering practice. But isn't that post Eddie Kramer? Oh, this is pre-Eddie Kramer. It's pre-Eddie Kramer. Uh, oh, sorry. Well, Eddie Kramer really, he, he came up mid-60s, didn't he? He was more, um, the first I heard of Eddie was the, the first Hendrix album. Uh, um, he may have done stuff previously. I'm sure he did. But that's the same it. technique where he had to figure out mic placement so as not to destroy the mic from Hendrix's volume. Well, yeah, I'm sure he did. He probably had a hell of a lot more problems with Hendrix than Gus did with Eric Clapton. Because I... <laughs> You hear stories about when when Hendrix was recording, there'd be complaints from um, you know establishments in the street that uh, they, they, the the volume coming out of the studio was too loud. I don't know how true that is. But yeah, so so Gus was was working on that early Clapton stuff. That's fascinating. Yeah. Not just Clapton, but all John Mayles blues breakers, uh, Mick Taylor. Great, great guitar sound. I mean, they was lucky to have the players. Again, they were just teenage lads. Taylor was 18, 19 years old, playing like a god. By the time he joined the Stones, he was a has-been, as far as I was concerned. You know, he'd done all that he had to do. He was just treading water in the Rolling Stones. Now, I know Andy's a huge uh, Rory Gallagher fan. Are you a Gallagher mm -hmm. fan? Yeah, very much so. Oh, and certainly at the age of 17, 18, I was, he was my hero. And I loved the fact that he could rock up with a little Fox AC30 and a Stratocaster, Rangemaster treble booster, and that was his sound. Nothing else. He'd just go on, stand up at the mic, hammer out the, you know, and he'd play like, a de like the devil. Yeah. You could get sounds out of that beaten up guitar that sounded the way the guitar looked. It was all scratched, all the lacquer had been scratched off it. I don't know how old Rory was, probably 21, early 20s again, but just played with such fire and feeling. Um, but I, I just kind of felt he kind of almost burned out after, after his first band, Taste, broke up and he went out as a solo artist. I did see um, one of the early gigs on his first solo tour. It was fantastic, uh, really just electrifying. And I just thought, wouldn't it be so, just one man to create so much energy and excitement with an electric guitar? That was everything to me. And he had no, no gimmicks, nothing flash. Didn't even, you know, he wore a pair of jeans, Converse All-Stars and a lumberjack shirt. That was Rory. And uh, I think it was just the fact that, you know, it was so honest, brutally honest and brilliant.